welcome to the Office 365 Developer Podcast, the only show focused on Office 365 development where Rich and I talk to the experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 Developer Platform. For more information on Office 365 Development, please visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. Okay, and welcome to episode 74. Rich, how are you going, man? How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was good. I, I think every country should have a Thanksgiving. Everyone has things to be thankful for. And for us, it gives us a few days to at least not have to respond to email and maybe build some stuff on the side. You know, lots of good old geek fun. Did you um, turn off completely? You know, I, I was almost forced to turn off. I had yeah. some internet problems at the house. I know first world problems, but uh, I did have some internet problems <laughs> and that forced me to have to actually go up to work on a Sunday to do a little bit of work. But for the most part, it was uh, it was a little bit of a relaxing holiday. How about yourself? So like zero internet, not even like a few problems. You had zero internet at home. I did completely zero. I could I could probably tether my phone, but I already have been starting to go over with my data plan. So I didn't do a whole lot of that. Yeah, I got caught out this month on my bill. $130 for a 30-minute conversation from Stockholm to home. I thought I'd use Skype for Business and dialed a cell number in the US to make a work call. And turns out that it had just gone natively to my iPhone calling. And yeah, so I got that bill through, which wasn't very great. Nice. Good old surprises. Yeah. Don't, don't you love it? You know, you do the right thing and you pay for your little international roaming add-on pack and then you get screwed with that. Yep. I've been there. But um, no, Thanksgiving was awesome. We, uh, I was invaded, obviously, by the uh, better half's family for uh, the day and uh, met some new family members I hadn't met. Starts to kind of you know, remind me of those crazy Christmas films where you get to meet all the the nutso aunts and uncles. Um, so should really just make a film, write a book, but I suspect everyone could do the same thing when they go in to family Thanksgivings or Christmases, which will be coming up for everybody else. Yep. Or the vast majority of the population of the world. But um, no, it's nice. It's starting to get really cold here. I know you don't suffer that. It's cold here, right? It's cold in Texas right now. I mean, we're... we're really? We're, it's, it's just about freezing. Like below zero cold? No, no. It's, really? I mean, it's right around freezing a little bit above, but yeah, it's chilly. Yeah, I'm not looking for... They were predicting rain this week, which is good. I really don't want snow because I don't want the responsibility of having to sweep my driveways like I used to do in New York, which was never a pleasant sight. And those driveways are small. Now I have a house. Hold on. Tap the brakes. I would be concerned with how long that would take. Tap the brakes. We know very well that if it snows in Seattle, you guys probably shut down the city. Like there's no operations being done. Yes. So you you should be wanting snow. Like cold and wet is disgusting. Cold and snow? You know, like a, when you're at school and you're like, quick, no school day, no school day. That's right. Yeah, I, I suspect it doesn't take a lot. I know Chris, CJ was had talked about it before that they'd had like an inch of snow and basically the freeways were shut. Well, that's how it is in Texas too. We, we shall see. That could be quite fun. Yeah. But um, be another good excuse to use the generator again if the power goes off. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, it's um, it's. I do love the seasons. I did miss that about living in Australia and only having basically summer and a mild, mild winter. And so having four seasons here is great, but it is damn cold here. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a really, really busy week. And I say this every week, but just every week, there's just so much information that we have to get through. I think the most, well, drawed excitement, I think, in terms of if you ask me to put a gun to my head and ask me to pick one, I would probably say the productivity hack that we've got going that we launched this week. Wow. Um, but PowerApp, yeah, whereas PowerApp does come in a, a sneaky second. I think I think because you've known about PowerApps. Like, that's, it's, like yeah. the, the shack and all wasn't there for you as it was for probably a lot of our listeners. Yeah, and that always amazes me when you like stalk Facebook and Twitter. And, and I know a lot of the, the people are immediately on Facebook and Twitter and blogging about it are the ones that have known about it for a while as well under NDA through the MVP program or the, the preview programs we have. But um, it's been quite interesting seeing people's opinions of Power Apps. And uh, we're going to try and get someone on the show for next week to talk in more detail about the dev story around it and the extensibility aspect. Uh, we'll let other people talk more about the Power User story. But the Power Apps is, is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's an area that we've we've 
had a lot of MVPs that have been popular around doing sessions around, you know, the, the in kind of power user being able to build applications and, you know, the way they're doing it with different types of data connectors and things like that. I think it's, um, it's incredibly powerful, you know, being able to imagine an end user being able to just out of a few drag and drops and clicks end up with a, an application that runs on mobile devices. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And from the bits I've played with it and the demos I've seen other people do, it really is that simple. Yeah. Which is, uh, it, it's going to be an incredible bit of tech. I think it, it definitely is a game changer in the industry. And uh, I'm really excited to see what people do with it. And it's definitely one of those things where there's no way our engineers can even begin to imagine what the possibilities are here or what this could be running down the track in a large enterprise. Yep. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have a lot more on Power Apps. There's a bunch of links. There's a blog post by Bill Staples, who's over in the Azure team that kind of looked after building this. And I'm linking off to the developer, develop an API for Power Apps, which essentially we'll go into more detail next week. But you just build an API, throw swagger around it, and then register it with the Power Apps service, and you're good to go. But as I say, we'll go into way more detail around that later on but yeah no the most exciting thing this week for me really is we've been doing a ton of in-person hackathons and you're just about to by the time people listen to this you would be on your way home from santa clara the and devcom which is a big android conference we've been doing these things and using devpost.com to host these hackathons and you know i've in the last few we've definitely learned a lot on the in-person ones around how to get people excited to attend the intro to the hackathon and actually stay and start hacking themselves and to like kind of brainstorm ideas with them and then get them actually submitting what they've built into DevPost and then the judges voting. And, you know, you've been there, Rich. Like, it's amazing what people can get built in in that 24-hour uh, period at these, these events in person with the help of engineers and so forth that are there. But um, this hack productivity one we've just launched on DevPost. Do, do you want to quickly explain what your thoughts are on how this could be different from uh, the timing, I guess, on this? Well, I mean, I, I, A, we're giving a, a much bigger window, and I think we're looking for something that's more significant than you know something that's hacked on overnight and, and you show up with something. To me, this is probably something that's closer to being almost product-ready, I would say, to some extent. But to me, probably the biggest impact that I see on this is when we go to all these hackathons, and I think that between the two of us, we've been to every single one that's been delivered, uh, you know, one or the other has. And, you know, we, we've had some pretty significant prizes. I know that it at, um, uh, for instance, TechCrunch Disrupt, that hackathon, I think we had like $10,000 in total prizes, cash prizes, in fact. But um, the, the prizes that they have for this are significant. This is like, I'm going to go buy a car significant. <laughs> and so I, to me, I, I, you know, I can't participate being a Microsoft employee, but I know we have some really sharp developers that listen to this podcast that could go off and, you know, potentially walk away with some huge prizes. Yeah. And it's, it, it's pretty cool because there's a grand prize of like 10 grand in cash. You get tickets for up to two members of your team to a Microsoft conference you can pick. Uh, I'm guessing most people will pick build because they're hard to get their hands on. Um, you get to meet people, uh, the product management representatives, either virtually or in person, depending on where you are. You get to meet with the Microsoft incubation group uh, and an allowance on a premium Microsoft Office 365 service for one year for up to five team members and one Surface product. So that's pretty cool in terms of, you know, what, what you can get your hands on there for first price. But then even second price is five grand in cash. Third price is two and a half grand. And then there's different category awards that you can win on top of third, second, and third prize for things like best personal productivity application, best family household productivity application, best student application. So it's really, really neat how you can win money basically based on what you build uh, either as an add-in or an Office 365 API or, or both. Yeah. And, and beyond that, this we are giving people more time in, in this type of yeah. competition, if you will. You know, you have, it's, it's basically a three-month submission period. So between November 23rd all the way to March 1st is kind of the window for this. And, you know, that's something that you could put together a team and potentially 
kind of work on it off and on for a, a few months and still probably produce something that is you know relatively significant yeah and uh, you know i'm looking at the participants already there's 80 85 in here already which is really really cool uh, there's a few that are obviously you can see there's a five or so on here that have been on various different projects on devpost.com but there's a lot of newbies on here too so i'm really excited to see uh, what these guys do and we're going to help facilitate team building if you don't want to build on your own but you're interested and so forth so if you're interested to find out more about this stuff go and visit msoffice365.devpost.com um, and you can go and see about the rules and the submission information the drawings or the, the the schedule for the submission ends on March 1st so you've got plenty of time it's four months to essentially go away and, and build those bits and pieces so I'd uh, highly recommend checking that stuff out. This is going to be a good thing for a learning experience for maybe you in your own company where you've got a bunch of guys doing Office 365 development. Maybe you can talk your managers into kind of doing this as a, a bit of a, a way of a learning experience, but also as maybe as a promo to the company for having a team in the hack. Uh, same thing for a product company as well. It's a nice way to get the your company's name out there as well as having people in your team individually learn and benefit from playing with this new stuff. Because you might be in the environment where you don't get to build things day-to-day on Office 365. And this is a great way of getting to play with the new bits while maybe in your normal work life, you're still working on SharePoint 2010 or 2013 or so forth. Yep. And then other news from us was uh, Vaser actually has been plugging away with his Office 365 developer PMP webcasts. And he's got a new one here on asynchronous operations with Office 365 using Azure Web Jobs. So this is something that he did with Bert Janssen uh, as a 38-minute video on Channel 9 and then a bunch of um, resources and code samples. Yeah, the, the web jobs, you know, that's that's something that, you know, very early on, uh, we had a number of people blog, uh, Kirk Evans, myself, a few other people, uh, wrote some blogs about that as a, a kind of a popular way of 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 modeling a, a timer job. I mean, if you look at what a web job does in Azure, you actually can set set up schedules just like you could with a timer job. You could say, you know, I want this thing to run every hour at this time. You can do the same thing in those web jobs. And the cool thing is you just take like a console application, you zip it up. You literally do it. You, you create a zip, a zip compress file with uh, the executable you just upload it into Azure and it, it just goes and, and chugs along at it. And so um, it's, it's a really good way of, you know, one of those patterns of taking a way that you used to do things with full trust code and doing it in kind of the modern way of, of doing development. Yeah, and it's I think it's something that comes up a lot, not just in a product with an ISV, but also in the enterprise dev space as well, where you know it's too long for a workflow that you want running because you want a bit more visibility than the black box that the workflow gives you. And it's you know, it's way more in control and more flexible and scalable than what you can do with workflow as well. So definitely worth checking that, that, that webcast out as well. And it has been out there in the wild, but I like the way that they're going back and doing these videos in PMP now to really go deep on these things too. Yep. And then um, Andrew Coates, who was my mentor in DX when I was actually over there as a consultant a long time ago and taught me the tricks of the trades of presentation back in the day. It's great to have him loop back in into the Office 365 world in DX in Australia and, and Asia in general, really, with what Andrew's travels schedule is doing. And they just had Ignite down in Australia, which was basically a regional version of what we did in Chicago last year for, or this year, sorry, in Ignite. And we'll be doing in Atlanta next year in, in September. And all of those videos are available publicly now on Channel 9. And so if you go to Channel 9 and you click on events and pick Ignite Australia, you can see them all and you can filter by Office tags. But one of the ones they, uh, that Andrew did was Advanced Windows 10 Development with Office 365 APIs. Now, it's only had 42 views, so I'm hoping this podcast bumps the view count up online because one of the cool things that Andrew did in his sessions was he got up a good friend of mine who I used to work with at Redify, actually, who um, works at Xamlin.net now, Jordan Knight. And what they did was they built a IoT device uh, that connected to the Office 365 APIs that used the calendar APIs to go away and change the color of this IoT device, which is essentially a bunch of LED lights based on what your status was on your calendar. So it changed certain colors depending on 
when you had meetings in the day or if it went it went green if there was no more meetings for the rest of your day and the idea was you put that strip basically in your office somewhere that where it's visible so it used an arduino device again i'm not i haven't done very much with iot but um jordan's actually shared this project on github as well he's called it the day bar and i'll make sure the links are in the show notes for this i know cj had been playing with one of these pieces of kit but not for office 365 he was doing it for his build server for his new company um and i'd been talking about doing this and just again timing had never got around to it but this is a really cool scenario yeah you know what's interesting is um it's it's a real like scenario that people have have actually monetized um, i don't know if you've ever seen one of these but you can actually get these little like cubes that you can set out that will connect and look at your link status or skype for business status and we'll update the color based on your status there. It's the same concept. And this, the, those were actually something that people went out and sold. Um, and so this is pretty neat that uh, not only did he get it working with calendar our calendar APIs, but actually is, is contributing that to the community through GitHub. Yeah. So I'm, I, I would highly recommend watching that video. Um, Andrew is an absolute pleasure to watch um, when he talks about anything development wise, but he does an awesome job of talking about the APIs and WinDev as well. So, and Jordan's really cool too. He's been around the, this space for a long, long time. So um, that was really cool. And then, so from the non-Microsoft stuff, the connectors of getting some more heat uh, Corey Roth has been blogging again in his .netmathia.com blog where he wanted to set up an Office 365 connector for an Outlook group that essentially connected up to Twitter. And what he did was he logged in with his Twitter account and then he essentially put in a bunch of Twitter accounts he wanted to follow. Uh, but you could do it for hashtags as, as well. And then he did big news on uh, particular keywords. In this case, for some reason, he put in Neil Patrick Harris as a keyword. Uh, whatever floats your boat there, Corey. <laughs> in terms of, I don't find that guy at all funny. Uh, he's he's the one that's on... Um, Hauser. How I Met Your Mother, right? Yeah, I know. But he tries to be funny on How I Met Your Mother. I just don't get it. <laughs> anyway, but the neat part about these connectors is when you go into the Outlook group in, you know, Outlook 2016 or in O in the web browser... When you click on the messages, you can comment and reply on them. So when you see the tweet from, in this case, he's got one called Will, we- Will Wheaton, is you can reply in that context of that post of the, the connector signal going into the Outlet group. And I just think it's a really neat way of um, actually being able to have discussions around things that are going on in your your org or externally of your yeah. org as well. And the nice part is is that all this stuff is extensible. So Vardaman Despandi has actually built out a, uh, a sample ASP.NET MVC web project where he has included a way of connecting to his service into an Outlook group. And he's shown like all of the code he's, he's had to write to basically register for that connector and so forth through the just simple REST webhook notifications, which is really, really cool. So um, I'm excited about this connector stuff. It's amazing how quickly the community has jumped on those and started to build out cool stuff with it. So should be neat. Yeah, I know a bunch of the engineers from those teams have been reaching out to me going, how is this happening? What are you doing to promote it? I was like, well, we've been tweeting a little bit about the documentation. And obviously it was uh, mentioned at Build, uh, sorry, at Connect in one of the the videos and, and, and you know the community have just got excited about this scenario and how simple it is to hook up so yeah i'm, I'm definitely working with them now on this bounty list they're like well we've got some ideas and we're going to start posting that bounty so that people can get all excited about stuff and start building these things um as part of our community efforts and what else have you found out there in the blogosphere this week well one uh, simon yeager who um has been doing a lot of great things around add-ins uh, had a good post about being able to save properties on an exchange item and an Outlook add-in. So I'll give you a really cool example. In fact, we used to have a, a sample in one of the early roadshows that did this was, imagine if there was a, a YouTube add-in that if someone sends me a YouTube link, instead of opening up a new window, I can just view it right there in Outlook. Well, maybe, maybe as that video plays, we want to capture where they stopped watching it so that if they ever launch it again, we can go directly to that point in the video. 
Well, these custom properties are a way of doing that. You can actually save. It's like a think of it as like a property bag on the item. But what's cool about it, it's a property bag that floats with the item. So if I go, if I'm in Outlook client, and then I close that and I go to another PC or Mac or something like that and pull up OA or pull up, a, you know, a, an Outlook client there, that property follows the item. And so it's a really great way of storing some sort of uh, custom data with the item. And he, so he talks about how you can go and, and save and load those custom properties. Yeah, it's definitely neat. There's a lots of op- opportunity there with like persisting config of maybe you've got, launched a mail and you've got a task pane out in, in context and you want that setting to be persisted when you jump into that mail from maybe another out office client that you're using that supports task pane add-ins. And so I really like the way that he's written it up and it's, it's great to see people kind of sharing and exploring this information in that way. So thanks again, Simon, for... He's churning them out now, which is great. We've got the machine going there for sure. I know. I know. I'm jealous. (laughs) Ilio Struth has actually been doing some stuff as well. We had him on the podcast when he was up for the MVP Summit. uh, And he was talking about building a domain or service app with with the Microsoft Graph. Now, I know you've done a lot with this. And there's still a fair bit of confusion around why you would use this and the confusion around this being like a God mode account versus a service app waking up. Do you want to, could you go into a little bit around what you, how you explain this to people when you're talking about it? Um, I'm not sure I've, I fully follow what you mean by like a service app waking up, but I mean, ultimately all of our permissions that Azure Active Directory secures, which does, it secures a ton of things beyond just Office 365, um, they all of those can have both delegated permissions and application permissions. Delegated permissions means it's going to run in the context of a user. An application permission is something that runs at a higher level. So it doesn't care, you know, in in the SharePoint world, you had the concept of doing like SP security dot run as elevated user, or like Kirk Evans likes to call it running with scissors. <laughs> the idea being is that you could go and you could do something beyond what the permissions the user had the ability to do. And, and so that's pretty common. Um, you know, you might want to do all kinds of things. It might be doing things like provisioning site collections, and you don't typically maybe have the user have permission to do that, but you could do it with that, that higher level account. Okay, so I see what you're saying. So there's actually kind of two ways you could go about doing this. One is you could, in like a console application or something, actually put a user's credentials that has a really high level of permission. However, true application permissions, actually, if you did that, if you used like a service account, that would be using delegated permissions. You would be using the delegated permissions of that service account user, whatever that is. Um, with, With the application only permissions, you actually can just operate as the application. And uh, there's there's a little bit of confusion because the way we've implemented it, uh, or the one of the preferred ways of implementing it is with certificates. And, and always certificates, I find developers immediately kind of cringe and, oh, I have to deal with certificates. But um, Elio does a really good job of, of walking through. I have a blog that talks about doing this with SharePoint that goes through in detail on how to create certificates. And um, even beyond that, uh, I'll, I'll plug Sonia's office dev show, she had a, a really cool ISV called form.io. They, um, they actually built a, uh, in a sense, kind of like Yeoman, they built a, a little generator to do all of that certificate stuff for you. It's, it's really neat, especially... It's so easy to generate certs on a, a PC, but if you're on a Mac, that gets a little bit more difficult creating those certificates. And uh, they've basically done all that for you to do this app-only flow. So, yeah, definitely check out the blog post. Uh, don't be scared by seeing certificates involved here because it is a really powerful thing that Azure Active Directory supports. Yeah, I think the one thing I was trying to point out was a lot of people think that when they see the word service app, they think of service account, which has God mode across everything. So one of the big things that people assume this will do that it doesn't do is um, where you want to uh, like access other people's calendars using the the Microsoft Graph endpoint. I see. Okay. Yeah. So that that's always the, the kind of the, the gotcha there when when then when that happens. So it's just one thing to worth bearing in mind. So with those that particular scenario. 
uh, you would want to carry on using the more traditional ways of accessing that stuff via via EWS APIs, Exchange Web Services APIs. Yep. So, yeah, so that was an interesting post. Then the last one there was the Stephen Cordonnier, who has been blogging a lot as well recently and has been kind of giving us tons of feedback on GitHub, which is great in the, for publishing issues and stuff on our documentation and so forth, is when we shipped Microsoft Graph, and Ian will talk about this more in the show, we did make some changes from when we moved from preview in our beta endpoint to V1.0. 1.0. And one of those things was in terms of the casing there that we have in our APIs and just to basically enforce consistency uh, across them all. So you just have to be really careful here uh, where you see some coming across as Pascal case and some in lower camel case uh, in the documentation. And just it's something that we're aware of and we're working on right now. And so just check out the documentation because that will be up to date and we are pushing through some changes into the V1 endpoint to kind of fix some of those known bugs as well as, as we go through that. So I appreciate uh, Stefan actually blogging that stuff as well. So big thanks there for doing that. Okay, so we've got Ina on the show this week. Uh, obviously, she was super excited to finally get the Microsoft Graph GA'd. I know you were with her in New York for the Connect event when that happened and you, I, from the videos, you can tell she's super pumped, but I guess during the week, she was just out of her mind in terms of just excitement for getting this stuff GA'd. What was it like from those announcements and just being around the engineering teams that were there during that event? You know, I, I, obviously, there was a lot of excitement. There was a, They were obvi- very proud. I don't think if if you haven't worked with these yet, it, you it's, it's hard to really grasp how big of a deal this is. Uh, this is a huge deal for Microsoft. And it's not just an Office 365 thing. You know, the idea behind the Microsoft graph is that it's really something that we want to front end all of our end user facing APIs eventually. And, and so this is the beginning of uh, a, a huge thing. And and obviously, Yina being the, you know, the primary, uh, you know, manager over that effort, uh, there was, you know, she was excited, proud, and um, it was a fantastic event to be able to unveil that on a big stage. So uh, it was, it was cool. It was awesome to be there. Yeah, and it's great that we can get her on the show to talk into more details. I've been kind of collecting Twitter questions and Facebook and LinkedIn uh, questions from people, and I, we've made sure this podcast kind of covers that off. So hopefully, along with all the information we've got on uh, graph.microsoft.io, uh, this just kind of adds a little bit more you know, flavor on top of the cake in terms of understanding what the Microsoft graph is. So Rich, I know you're traveling tomorrow, so safe travels. Thanks for jumping on yep. to do this intro before you go. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Cool. And welcome to the show, Ina. How was your Thanksgiving week weekend? Hi, Jeremy. How are you? It was great. We had a great dinner with friends. Yeah, it was um, It was nice, I'm sure, to get the break after having the big, big connect week in New York where we had all the announcements for a lot of the stuff you've been heavily involved with back in Redmond. Indeed. It was a nice break and finally getting that chance to get some long sleep. I, I know for for sure that yourself, Sonia, Rob Howard and a bunch of the team, because I could see the GitHub commits of the documentation was happening definitely outside work hours. And it seems like where you're in New York, you're doing double shifts. Yes, yes, it's true. But a uh, huge amount of effort by a whole bunch of amount of people and totally worth it. The community reception was uh, was just great. And it's just heartwarming when, you know, all of that work gets so much uh, great attention and positive uh, feedback from the community. Yeah, I mean, it was really cool to see the pickup for specifically the Microsoft Graph through the press, the, the, the kind of the technical press, um, but also by the community as well. There was a lot of excitement to see this progression that we've uh, we've made around the Microsoft Graph. And, you know, we, we were nervous a little bit in terms of re- renaming it from what it was in preview with the, the unified API to the Microsoft Graph. But all in all, it's come across really strong in terms of getting understanding our direction, our vision of what we're doing with the API. Yes, and that was the intention all along. We had some legal difficulties that prevent us from calling it its rightful name when we launch it at build. But ho- thankfully, those were resolved in the uh, subsequent months, and we were able to just call it Microsoft Graph. I mean, it's the endpoint is graph.microsoft.com, right? So right. from 
from its birth, it, its intention was to be um, well, a unification API that goes across more than just Office. So, um, you know, in terms of what you do at Microsoft, can you just explain, like, how long you've been at Microsoft and um, what your involvement was in the Microsoft Graph and the team team you're in? Absolutely. So, uh, I have been at Microsoft for the last five years. I started working in SharePoint Developer Platform. I was there for a couple of years working on the SharePoint, now called Add-in Model, and provider-hosted apps and SharePoint-hosted apps. And then moved on to work into um, the Office Developer Platform team and did um, the Common Consent Framework for applications into which you can go and uh, get the applications, get the, uh, the permissions for the information that they request for, and then they are able to access that um, across multiple services. So that was common consent. I also was a PM for the discovery service, which allows you to, based on a, a token that has a user identity and a set of permission scopes, get back the set of endpoints that uh, that the application requires to get access to the data. It, this is in particular important for OneDrive uh, for Business, in which the endpoints vary per tenant and user. And after that, uh, started working on Microsoft Graph. As you see, it's a natural progression from uh, starting to get all of our services ready when we think about Exchange and SharePoint and Azure Active Directory and where they were a couple of years back in terms of their developer platform and how this pair there were. Some of them having just SOAP services, some of them starting to early introduce REST services, others with just PowerShell-based APIs. So it was really hard for our developers to integrate with the services in a, you know, in a consistent way. And if you were building an application that had to interact with multiple of them, then you'll have to do uh, jump through the hoops to be able to do this. So we, it, it's been a natural progression, uh, all of that work landing towards Microsoft Graph, starting with uh, getting the services to adopt REST and uh, OD the standards, and then getting the, this, the common consent framework for having the, been able to handle the authentication pieces seamlessly. Uh, still a little bit more, it still had a little bit of complexity because you had to uh, handle multiple refresh tokens along the way. But um, just being able to have the user experience, having a single consent experience and all that. And then discovery service for being able to get access to the resources without having to prompt the user for them or things like that. And now uh, with Graph, basically getting all that that we have been working for the past few years consolidated under uh, the single Graph endpoint, which is all of the services that feed into it, Exchange, SharePoint, AAD, uh, well, from OneDrive for Business, AAD, and uh, new services that are coming along, like OneNote and Planner and all of these, just getting them together and being able to not only access the data that is in the services, but also traverse to it, which I think it's the huge value proposition of the graph. So like, it's been a natural progression from when I started back in the SharePoint days five years ago up until uh, getting Microsoft Graph out of the door a couple of weeks back. Yeah, and it's testament to your kind of engineering team working really closely with all of the others. I think, I think the thing that I've kind of taken on from being at Microsoft only two years now is that, you know, people look at Microsoft and just assume they're all in your rooms together, buddy-buddy all the time, writing code next to each other. But the reality is, is we're in different buildings on campus and we're all trying to build up our own individual APIs that benefit the product, the, the team we're a member of. Yeah. So, you know, where you mentioned the AD team and the Outlook team, and the SharePoint team and the OneDrive team. And, um, and then you have all the Office client teams that are working and Skype and Planner and it, it goes on and on. And so, you know, by the nature of the, the human race, the, people go off in different directions and do their own thing. And where I thought the API was really compelling was that it kind of enforced everyone to do it the, the same way and have yeah. the same authentication and the same shapes. And when you looked at it, it, it wasn't as much learning to jump from calling mail, calendar, or contacts to jumping to look at files, which was great. This is truly a showcase of uh, the comp the direction that we're going as as a company and the one Microsoft uh, lemma, which is we're coming together a whole bunch of teams like we like you were saying we're a huge company, 
all the teams have different priorities. They're busy doing their own stuff. But uh, for projects like this one, we've come together multiple teams, not only the teams that uh, cover the APIs like AAD and Exchange and OneDrive and OneNote and Planner, but also teams that are producing content around like code samples and SDKs and documentation. Like there's a whole bunch of teams that are underneath working together to come up with this. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned is around like as part of coming together, there's a whole bunch of rationalization that you we have to do, right? Like around things like might seem very simple, but are very, very important when you're building APIs is like just the style of it, casing, the conventions, like how are we going to do access data, like all of these different things, uh, we had to come together and actually rationalize on those and make some changes on different services in order to accommodate all of them being together within one endpoint. Yeah, and it's quite a diplomatic thing. Like I've been in some of those meetings where, you know, people have opinions on what, how things should work and it, it often it becomes hard on kind of coming to a decision across all those teams of which way we're going to go with certain things as well. So you're definitely in the middle there kind of pushing that role and it's, it's great to see it come out so successfully. So, you know, big kind of tip to the hat for what you guys do over there in that team. Thank you. And then the other thing that, you know, obviously was quite a bit of work because they're tracking so quickly as well is the Azure AD authentication team with like Dan Kershaw and Vittorio and so forth on, you know, with the, you know, the move from ACS, which is what SharePoint uses to Azure AD. And then obviously now with the kind of the newer Azure AD, what they, I think they were calling App Model 2. Converged endpoint. Yeah, with a converged endpoint where now you'll be able to call both the personal endpoint, i.e. I'm going to go to my Outlook.com or my OneDrive files, or I'm going to go to my work and school kind of accounts where I'd be looking at my um, Outlook on 365 or OneDrive for business and so forth. So that that's kind of something you're working with those teams closely on at the moment as well, isn't it? Yes, yes. And indeed, the API supports it. So today, if you go to apps.dev.microsoft.com and register an app for an application there, you can, that application you will be able to use to access both consumer and commercial services. There is a flow into which you request the permission scopes rather than when um, and the traditional thing that we have been doing for AAD, where you go to the Azure portal and select the service and then select the permissions. Instead, uh, on the new uh, on the converged model, there is this requesting the scopes is dynamic. So you basically send out um, the request for authorization with the, with the scope strings in there. And um, based on the logged in user, then we, you know, it figures out like whether it is a uh, personal account or whether it is a work or school account and then access the appropriate service. Yeah, and that's neat because it means as a developer, I don't have to learn two different shapes of APIs to be able to get at the same sort of data. And then there are lots of scenarios where people want to go into um, both worlds, you know, for things like pulling calendars from both my personal world and my work world or um, being able to make a decision on a document I'm writing being stored in my personal world rather than my work world as well. So um, it's really great that we have the same auth flow, the same endpoint shapes for both personal and work. Yes, yes, indeed. The, that's, a, I think, a huge milestone for us to reach in order to have parity around the API surface for both consumer and commercial services and have a simple auth mechanism that will allow us to do get access to that. The experience before was far less from ideal where you actually had to register two different applications in order to do that. And then this, the APIs were different. So you basically had to write different code for interacting with the services, right. which is no longer the case, right? Like you can just go the same set of uh, the same code base will basically work for both of them. There are still functionality that you will find that are that is in the in the work and school accounts that the personal accounts don't have. Like for example, groups is a functionality that is part of uh, work and school, Office 365. It's it's not quite in into the personal side, but you can you can then continue your code with that if your app interacts with those serv with that additional functionality, or just keep it on to the you know, the, the set that is paired from both. Right. An example of, you know, the I guess some people are, are still feeling through this much like we are internally in the sense that we've been in preview with this Microsoft graph for, for a while now since announcing it publicly 
uh, in the build timeframes of this year. And we've been evolving things and changing things. And I know you've been great at making sure we get the blog posts out on dev.office.com slash blogs where we've updated endpoint shapes or for instance we changed uh, MiWAC files to MiWAC drive for instance how how are you kind of tracking those things internally what's your decision point on making those things making those things in change in preview um, before they get kind of baked and locked in for a v1 is it is it mainly customer feedback from uh, a subset of people you work with or is this kind of feedback you track from lots of different sources it's a combination of multiple things uh, i think the number one goal was rationalization and having uh having ma- making sure that our experiences reflected what we wanted to have in the exp- in the api um so we did a lot of changes that were uh for example around OneDrive API and making sure that we were using the latest API for OneDrive that will work for both consumer and commercial services. We made lots of changes around uh, Groups API and making sure that the Groups API was um, was reflective of what we were doing for Office 365 uh, groups as, and, and as well the groups that we had before, like DL security groups or email-enabled uh, security groups. And... Uh, there's a lot of feedback that we're getting from partners that we work with from the NDA top program. We have a set of partners that they they have gotten access, early access to the beta endpoints and they interact with them. They try they build their applications. We get feedback from that. We have also internal teams that are building on top of the API the, um, and have been doing so since before uh, we announced that build. One of our key uh, value our key missions here is to make sure that uh, we make we produce an API that is worth for both third-party and first-party use. So there's several of our own internal applications that are building right now uh, their experiences using this API. And uh, so that's another one of the sources of feedback that we use. And uh, while we were doing well. After we announced the preview, then we got feedback from the community as well. And all those things is a mixture of all of these things that uh, help us, you know, make the changes that we made uh, going towards the V1 release. Yeah, and one of the, the massive changes that we had moving from the preview to the V1 release that we announced at Connect two weeks ago now was the, the documentation effort. And that was something that was I was really impressed with how the quality of documentation a lot of it was migrated from what was already there in the preview, but there was a lot of additional things added. And do you want to talk a little bit about what, what changes you made there and why that's beneficial, both from your team's perspective, but also for, for a developer consuming the APIs? Yes. Uh, indeed, the documentation effort was was huge for us. Uh, a, a huge win, not in terms of the amount of effort that was put into it, but in terms of like the amount of return for the investment that we got. Uh this process started with our concern that documents were drifting away from the APIs and the APIs are evolving at a fast pace and it's hard to keep documentation in, at, uh, you know, true to the API. So it evolved, the process evolved from several pro- uh, several practices that different teams have been trying out. Like we incorporated things like the OneDrive team was doing around uh, document-driven APIs. And we incorporated things that we have been doing internally around like uh, being able to um, take from the metadata of the API and generate documentation off of that. And we merged a whole b- bunch of best practices into this and came up with a process that allows us to generate the document documentation based on the API, and uh, then uh, we open source it to have the community come and, you know, not only look at the way that we're writing the docs, but also come and, like, say, like, spot up multiple issues that the docs might have, which we actually have already had a whole bunch of people from the community making pull requests on the repo and participating on it. So it's, it's been really great to be able to have a full set of documentation for the API that, uh, talks to all of the different uh, actions and functions and verbs and things that you can do with the API and then 
uh, have the community participate on it. Yeah, like I was just looking at the issues in terms of people giving feedback on descriptions of some of the properties and adding additional information for certain things. So it's great to see the community engaging. We are encouraging that. And also to see your team and the docs team and so forth um, jumping in with their kind of clarification questions or confirmations that they are bugs that are, will be fixed. So it's a really great way of seeing how open we are with these things now with the documentation. Yeah, and, and this is exactly what we want. We want the community involved. At the end of the day, I mean, our practices before is, is if you were writing an application and you were reading documentation, you'll probably make notes about the things that were not right, right? Yeah. And keep them to yourself. And then this is a great opportunity for us to build on top of that and share the knowledge and uh, make sure that we capitalize on all that uh knowledge that we have out there yeah we've been doing the same thing with the training content too as our trainers go out as a trainer before i definitely made notes about slides that were incorrect and and just adjusted them myself whereas now like we're encouraging that people will provide that feedback so we can improve that training content for everyone and not just that individual trainer so the same things happening in the documentation which is really good to see exactly Mm-hmm. And then um, the other aspect of it was that, you know, a lot of the feedback we got around the auth flows was the, the app registration. And you've already mentioned that now with the app risk registration, you don't have to go through the Azure management portal to go and create. Is that something that moving forward, that's where we're going to expect people to go to register applications uh, for Azure? Right now we are in a, I will call it a limbo state because the model that is GA right now for app registration is the one through the Azure Active, Dire- Azure Active Directory experiences that are exposed in the Windows Azure portal. In order to get access to them, you need a, a, an Azure subscription, and there's a process to to get that that it's not it's not the easiest one. And uh, so that's the model for for that's GA right now. And then there is also the new app registration experience that is supporting the converge.flows. Ideally, uh, it will be moved and transitioned to the new portal in which you will be able to get access to uh, app registration without having an Azure subscription. It's already there in preview, but we will get there to GA to, uh, in, in the short time, in a short period of time. So right now, there's, there's two options, right? Like if you want to uh, register an application that works uh, with Office 365 work and school accounts and that you want to put in production, then you have to go to the app registration portal in Azure Active in, in the Windows Azure portal. And if you want to experiment with uh, the new consumer and commercial converged auth experience, then you can go to uh, dev. Microsoft.com. And that's the, the other portal. And uh, so those are the two registration experiences. There is also something that I want to mention, which is um, if you go to dev.office.com slash get, get started, and um, there is an app registration there, which th- there is an app registration experience there, which is basically just some UI built on top of the uh, Azure experience, the, the one that is from the Azure portal, that doesn't require you to... Um, either get a subscription to to do the app registration or to log into the Azure portal to do it. So um, so that experience builds up on top of the existing GA app registration. And you can use that to very easily, very quickly create, uh, do an app registration that works against work and school accounts and uh, select permissions for users, files, converse, calendar, contacts, uh, groups, and just get going. Yeah, it's nice because when you download the samples, it'll pre-bake the client yeah. IDs and secrets into the, the samples. So when you pull them down and they're five, they just work straight away, which is kind of why we've done that there and that getting started, which is good. Mm-hmm. And in about eight to nine different platforms. So that's a very quick, easy, easy way to get started in the platform that you're working for. In less than five minutes, you're going to have an app up and running. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And then with with that, so it's all on devdoffice.com slash getting started or uh, graph.microsoft.io is where all the documentation lives and the graph explorer where you can kind of plug away with your sample graph calls when you're signed in to either a personal or a work and school and be able to kind of explore the API shapes and what it returns. Yes. So yeah, graph.microsoft.io is where we have the landing page for for graph. Actually, if you go to graph.microsoft.com, that will redirect to the documentation portal as well. 
that getting started experience that I mentioned before is in dev.office.com, but you can also get through the same uh, experience going through the graph.microsoft.com uh, portal and access to the documentations. We have an API Explorer. The API Explorer requires you to sign in with your Office 365 Work and School account. We're working on an API Explorer that um, will only will will work for both for personal and work and school accounts and that will also support uh, in addition to just getting information it will suppose support patching and posting and um, so it will be a richer API Explorer in order for you to be able to make things uh, play with the API further than just getting doing get requests so that's coming soon yeah that's awesome and then um, one other thing that comes up a lot around the naming of the Microsoft graph is we have the, we had the office graph already which on the Microsoft graph is working with and trending around but the the notion of the Microsoft graph being a graph like API and you mentioned it earlier on was about being able to jump from one entity to another one so I can list all the files that I have available to me in my OneDrive for business but then I can also see like the last modified by for that for one of those files which will return a user and then from that point I can then use that user ID to then drill in and see that user's files as well. What other scenarios are there where that where you can kind of transition around the API in, in that graph like way? So you mentioned the the one for files where you can get to a specific file and look at the the person that created that file or the person that modified that file and then jump to uh, that particular the full profile of that user. There's also, uh, you mentioned Office Graph. So there is, when you go to slash working with, you get back a set of results that allow you to, basically there are shallow representations that are come like with very few properties of the user, but you can follow the navigation to the full profile of those users. There's a part of Office Graph as well is trending around, which is, uh, will return back a set of uh, links to files. So basically following up uh, those links to get the actual content of the file and then further to get like who last modified it or who created that file. It, those are traversion points into the API. Uh, another example is in the planner API. There is a basically where we have places about created like person who created or person who modified. We can connect those between the specific entity and the user. Uh, and there are several examples around that. And so we, we had some questions um, because people knew that we'd be talking to you, Ina. So I'm hoping this doesn't jump you off guard a little bit. But um, I'll, I'll break break you in gently, I guess, in terms of the, the, the curl, curliness of the questions. But the first one we had back was around the casing. And this came from Stefan Cordania, who's an MVP, who's been blogging about the API since we re-released them in preview. And one of the blog posts he's put out recently was about the case sensitivity in the Microsoft Graph APIs. And the one he mentioned is around the fact that in some cases the we have used Pascal casing and in others we've used the camel case um, syntax, which essentially is a capital letters for the beginning of each word stacked together rather than the first word in the, the string is lowercase and then all the subsequent words, first letters are capitals. Is that in intentional or is this something where something may may slip through? So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit of behind the scenes on here in this particular case. So as I mentioned before, what we have is all of these different teams building APIs that uh, have evolved individually over time. And we did a big, very big push in order to rationalize everything. And one of those things was casing. And uh, on casing, we've agreed that we're going to go lower camel case for all of our APIs. And um, unfortunately, uh, on the exchange side, the changes that were required for doing lower camel case for their V2 endpoint were not, we will not be able to complete complete them by the time for connect. So the exchanges V2 and API still Pascal cased, but we wanted to have a lower camel case on graph.microsoft.com. So there is a whole bunch of translation on casing that we're doing on the graph layer. 
in order to uh, bridge that gap. Unfortunately, uh, some things, there were things that fell off the cracks and uh, send mail is one of those cases in which we, um, the exchange property requires a camel, upper camel case and uh, we're not doing the translation on AGS, on, on, I'm sorry, on the graph. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm using internal acronyms, um, on the graph side. So um, short, I mean, Long story short now is we're going to fix it. Uh, the long-term direction is everything is lower camel cased. We know, you know, things like casing are very important on API style. So um, we're going to take care of it. And and the comment around some people are like, why, why do we need um, strongly cased APIs? Why can't it, why does it matter that there's a casing importance? That's a decision we made early on that it is a case sensitive API that we're calling, right? No. So it's not, it's not anything that goes into your URL is complete, should be completely case insensitive. Um, We're just following basically the JSON style in which we have camel camel case responses, but anything that you put into uh, the URLs is should be case insensitive, and everything that you put into the uh, bodies should be case insensitive. Um, but the style that we follow through is uh, camel case. Right. Okay. Makes sense. And then the second question we had was uh, everyone's got really excited about our content APIs, especially with us shipping the or announcing the Excel REST APIs in preview on the Microsoft Graph. But a few have said that they can't get access to that Excel REST API. What's the status of that inner on the graph? Yes, uh, we are working very, very, very hard to put out the Excel API. Uh, it is very tricky for us to get it out there in terms of like a whole bunch of coordination that needs to happen between the uh, services that are hosting the file, the services that are hosting the sessions, the active sessions with the file. And uh, there's a whole bunch of coordination that needs to happen there. Um, we are ironing out the final details and will hopefully be able to uh, get the bits out on uh, the beta endpoint I think it will be now with the holidays being on the first towards the second week in January. Okay. And then I guess in terms of other APIs, the other one that came up was the tasks API, uh, which is related to the, the planner that's available. People are saying they're getting errors when they try and call the task API uh, on that. What, what would be the reason for, for that? So a task API maps to the Planner service. And Planner is a new application that was launched, uh, I think, uh, around a month back uh, for North America users and that are part of the first release. So if you are, uh, if you have a tenant in North America and uh, you can go to the Office 365 admin portal and turn out turn on first release, which means that you get the first set of features from the user experience perspective. Uh, that would turn uh, turn on and enable the planner service. And there's a whole, there's a very nice uh, UI that comes with it. And then uh, the, through the API, you will be able to access all of the tasks and plans and, uh, fun, you know, uh, items that are created there. So basically, is you have to be part of the first release. Yeah, and the best way to see whether you have it or not is if you click on the app launcher in the top left, the waffle, as people tend to call it as well externally, is you'll see a planner planner icon there. If, if it isn't there, that means you haven't got planner at all. And yeah. uh, I must admit, I've got some North American tenants that are in first release that still don't have planner. So it is something they're still rolling out. So, But that is dependent on why the task API would not work. Exactly. Yes. If you if you have a tenant with the service enabled, then uh, it it will work. Um, if, if not, then get into the first release train and then that will turn it on for your tenant. Yeah. And then um, the last one, which myself and Richard were debating in the intro to this show, actually, and I really wanted you to clear this up because it is something I think everyone gets con- confused about. It's something I've totally misinterpreted, I think, um, based on the explanation um, that I'm, I'm hearing prior to us kind of clicking record on this, but is one of the common scenarios that we keep hearing from it's mainly partners but it also can be enterprise devs that want to do things across different mailboxes is the ability to access all mailboxes through through using the graph and not directly on ews or 
on the direct Outlook endpoint that you can still get access to. Is that is that possible to do, to do that? Like, if I can, I iterate through everybody's inboxes and search, you know, per mailbox for certain items, or maybe iterate through someone's each everyone's calendars within the organization and add a calendar item to there or so forth? It is possible to do that uh, with graph.microsoft.com under certain conditions, which are basically the same conditions for the Outlook endpoint, which is uh, you have to use the client credentials flow or known as the app-only flow. Basically here, the app does, is not impersonating a user and it's acting on as uh, with its own credentials. Basically, it's a confidential client. And with this flow, um, there is a set of certificates that have to be set up and administrator consents for the application to access all that information on its own behalf. And you can be with this, you can use the API to access uh, all of the users' information that are stored in the exchange services, like mail, converse, uh, mail calendar, contacts, and uh, and. Right now, you cannot access files for users across uh, the OneDrive for Businesses, but that's something that is coming uh, soon after. So with AppOnly Flow, you right. can access things uh, uh, for mails, or users' mailbox, basically. So, so as long as the user that consents the AppOnly Flow... The administrator it's actually the one who, that consents. It's not just, this is an administrator required consent. Right, right, okay. So if I'm the tenant administrator of the Office 365 tenant and I um, do the administration consent, then that token that the, the, the web application can get, which is app only, could then access multiple different users within the organization's mailboxes. Yes, yes, that's correct. Excellent. And actually, Based on conversations that we've been having recently, and we understand there, there, is, there is documentation spread around in multiple places for this. So this week, we rallied up uh, resources to write an article around uh, this particular flow, and we'll hopefully have it soon out there in the in the portal. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah, the documentation is coming thick and fast, and it's nice to see um, the community kind of blogging about this as they're learning it too. So... We'll uh, keep rounding up all these different links in the uh, the weekly pod show notes as we find these things from like Stefan and I know Waldeck yeah. and Andrew Connell have also been kind of very active on this too. Absolutely, and I think uh, I will encourage them to you know, in addition to blogging about it, like logging the issues in the GitHub repo yep. and making pull requests to their documentation and all that. I mean, these docs are for. I mean, it's for you, right? Like. So all the love that you give to them is also going to come come back. So, yeah, it's for the community. Yeah, and so if you go to graph.microsoft.com or .io and then you see uh, the documentation link on the top navigation, you'll see a contribute to this content, use GitHub to suggest changes in, in the top top right by the cat icon. And when you click on the suggest changes um, hyperlink, it'll jump you over to github.com slash office dev slash Microsoft dash graph dash docs. And from here, you can jump in and, and actually jump into the issues and see what other people have raised there. And you can see there's a bunch of comments going on on those issues. And some have been tagged as bugs that need to be addressed by the, the docs team. Um, and so that's a really kind of nice way of seeing uh, kind of what activity and feedback's coming in through through the community as well, which is great. There's even a pull request in there right now, so I'll be interested to see how that gets tracked as well, which is great. Yeah, we're getting several pull requests a day, and uh, we're refreshing the documents very often in in the site that uh, to merge all of those changes. That's great, excellent. Well, look, you know, I really appreciate you being on the show. I, I think the guys are going to find that really useful. Um, information i know everyone's really excited about this api and and it's been nice to be i think the community like the fact that they're on the journey with your team rather than kind of this dark box of three years and then you ship it being able to see that transition from kind of the unified apis and common consent and the discovery service over to this more um you know one one API to rule them all, as I know you've said in a few of your really good videos. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's definitely going to that coin on as a slogan, that's for sure. It's been a great journey, and I'm really, really excited about the transformation that we've been having as a team uh, for, uh, for our developer platform, not just for Office, but across the company. 
and uh, it's it's really good times uh, for both having the community participate, for us iterating quickly and being able to, you know, put uh, new functionality out the door faster than we were able to do before. And and this is this is still beginnings. Uh, there's much more things that we have a, a planned for uh, for Graph and for the developer platform overall. So it's. Like you were saying, we're just happy to be part of the journey and have uh, all of the community participate in it with us. Excellent. Well, enjoy your first five-day, four-week back in the office after traveling to New York and Thanksgiving last week. And um, we'll definitely get you on the show in a, in a few months to talk a little bit more about some of the other new features of the graph that you've been working on as well. Sounds good. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Thanks, Ina. Thanks for listening, guys and girls. Make sure you check out dev.office.com for all of our other podcasts and all of our amazing resources. You can also check here for more information on our developer program where you can get a one-year, three developer tenant to stop building against the Office 365 platform. We're always here to chat with you on the Office 365 technical network on aka.ms slash Office 365 Dev Podcast Yam. Or you can follow us on Office Dev on both Twitter and Facebook. So until next week, guys, get coding. Get coding.